Today, we're going to learn about the basics of multiplayer. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome to the 24th episode of the Game Dev Field Guide. I am your host, Zaccavelli. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Zaccavelli underscore. And we have an open community Discord. The open invite link is in the show notes. It's a great place to come and learn and discuss kind of a wide range of topics, all of them to do with game dev. Also, in the Discord, there's a channel dedicated to the Game Dev Field Guide monthly game jam. The Game Dev Field Guide is a monthly game jam for this year. Um, We're currently two weeks into the first month's jam. The theme for the first month's jam is hide-and-seek with a modifier of audio game. So far, I've seen some um, pretty cool ideas and some good progress on the monthly game dem channel and the discord and i'm looking forward to playtesting the games here at the end of the month i would encourage you if you're looking to get better at becoming a game dev i would encourage you to come and participate in the monthly game jam at least one month this year but obviously the more months you participate the better you'll get and speaking of getting better let's go over to the game dev challenge The Game Dev Challenge is the segment of the show where I provide a prompt for the listeners. And usually it's some sort of game design prompt or maybe some kind of art challenge. But for the end of the year episode, I asked all of the listeners to go into the Discord and post their goal for the year of 2021. I'm a big believer in goals, especially ones that are um, attainable and realistic. And I think... Having those milestones really helps your development. And I'm glad to see that a lot of people also thought the same and submitted their uh, goals for 2021 in the Game Dev Challenge channel on the Discord. I'll just jump over there now, and we had so many submissions that I don't think I'll be able to read them all, but I'll just jump over there right now, and I will read some that pop out to me. Game of the Week says his goal for 2021 is that I want to complete a multiplayer game and feel satis- to feel satisfied with in 2021. Flamewolf14 says my game dev goals are to participate in at least two game jams I haven't done one before and figure out a plan or schedule to help get the New Year's resolution completed. Flamewolf would also like to get more practice... Although Flame Wolf says they're not much of a planner, but plans are supposed to help people stick to resolutions. Well, good news, Flame Wolf. By posting your goals for the year, you've already started a plan. Now all you got to do is stick to it. So two game jams this year. I'm going to hold you to it. In case you were curious, my personal goal for 2021 was to participate in at least five game jams this year. And you can bet that One of those, or probably a couple of those, will be the Game Dev Field Guide Monthly Game Jam, but I think I also want to do Let Em Dare again this year, and maybe some, like, obscure one. There's always some weird game jams out there that are kind of unique. Let's read one more here. Here's a good one. This comes from The Reagan. They said, My game dev goal for this year is to 10x my revenue from games last year. Last year I made a dollar and seventeen cents, so if I can make twelve bucks this year, I'll be over the moon. 
That is a great goal. Um, if you think about it, you just 10x your revenue every year, and <laughs> in like five years, you're a millionaire. So, yeah, just have that goal every year. But, yeah, anyways, sorry I couldn't get to all of them, but I'm happy that a lot of people went on there and posted them, and I will be really happy to see people complete them. Like I said, making milestones like this for yourself is, in my opinion, super productive. And even if you come up a little bit short, let's say you want to participate in a game jam every month this year, and you only do eight out of the 12 months, I mean, you still got eight games better. So to me, even if you fail your ultimate goal, as long as you give it a pretty good shot, I think you're still progressing, and that's kind of what the milestones are about. So yeah, we'll end it there, and let's talk about uh, this episode's Game Dev Challenge. And We're kind of going back to the traditional style of the Game Dev Challenges. This one will be more of a game design prompt. For this Game Dev Challenge, I would like you to take a game mechanic from any one of your favorite games and either break it into a multiplayer mechanic or add additional mechanics that make it multiplayer and I would like to see it done in a web of interactions type design. And the web of interactions is just a phrase that I came up with while writing this podcast episode. And we'll talk about it later when it comes to multiplayer game design. But what I had in mind for this is maybe there's maybe you have a favorite mechanic from a single player game. Either break it down into something that can be done by two people or maybe add additional mechanics that make the single-player mechanic more interesting. And I'll explain later about the web of interactions, and that'll probably help you explain your idea. So yeah, if you'd like to submit a submission to the Game Dev Challenge, jump over to the Discord, go to the Game Dev Challenge channel, and just type out your thoughts. With that, let's move over to the body of the episode. So this episode's about multiplayer fundamentals, and I kind of want to break it into two parts. The first part will be on infrastructure, and the second part will be on multiplayer game design. When we talk about infrastructure, I want to talk about the basics of how you might set up a multiplayer system. This can get really complex, and for the complex stuff, there's a lot better people out there to talk about it than me. But I just want to give you a really high-level view so that you know the basics, and you'll be armed with enough information to work on a basic system and be able to look up the things you need and ask the right questions. So in my mind, there's three general structures to multiplayer games. Um, You have local multiplayer, firstly, which this would be where all your players share the same screen. Think about something like Mario Party or offline Smash Brothers. I would also probably put LAN in this category. Um, LAN or LAN stands for local area network. A real simple example would be back in the day when you had the older Xboxes and you could connect them with a, some kind of cable. It might have been an Ethernet cable. It was a little before my time. Um, but then you would like play Halo together or you could think of it like how people used to play Counter-Strike together. They'd go to these big like office buildings or warehouses with a bunch of computers all connected up with wires. Um, the old Game Boys where you'd like make a trade in Pokemon with the wires connecting the two Game Boys. This is like the most simplistic form to me of networking and network-based games. For the sake of this episode, we're not going to really talk that much about local multiplayer or LAN. 
we're just going to focus on online um, multiplayer, but I think the game design principles will still be mostly true for all multiplayer games, really. So yeah, like I said, for this episode, we're talking about online multiplayer, and I'm going to split this structure into two groups. Those two groups are authoritative and non-authoritative. And I'll leave a link in the show notes uh, with a good article that has some graphics that really explain these two groups, but I'll do my best to explain them in words to you now. An authoritative design is one where you have a server and client relationship, and the server decides the game logic. Um, It takes inputs from the clients and kind of tracks the game state and then sends an update back out to the clients. This server can be in a warehouse somewhere or just an extra laptop you have in your office, or sometimes you can even set it up where one of the players can act as the host. If you're going to make a commercial game, you probably want to pay to have a server just somewhere in a warehouse Um, for security reasons and just professional reasons. (laughs) It's probably not good to have um, the whole ecosystem of your game on a random laptop in your office. This design, this client-server design, um, comes with some overhead and is more expensive to set up, but it's much better for guarding against cheaters and it has a better stability for your online experience. This is because there's a central authority, that being the server, um, and it's easier to decide what is and isn't a legal input. If you think about it, all the clients are sending the server their inputs and then the server can judge like this makes sense or this doesn't make sense and in the cases where it doesn't make sense um, you can have some logic to determine whether or not it's cheating and unless your warehouse wherever it is has problems or the server goes down there shouldn't be an interruption in the connection you should have a pretty stable service when doing a server client kind of structure you have to carefully decide what kinds of things you resolve client side and server side and by that i mean your game logic is going to be decided probably mostly on the server side but some can be on the client side you just have to figure out what makes sense a good example of the wrong thing being resolved on the client side comes from the game rainbow six siege now i haven't played rainbow six in a while so it might not be like this anymore but back when i was playing the ragdoll physics for dead bodies were resolved by the client and this would result in bodies being in different places for each player because each player was a client sometimes your vision would be blocked by a dead body when from another player's perspective the body was somewhere else and that's because these were two different clients and they were resolving where the ragdoll physics happened um, on their own. Without the central authority, i.e. the server, um, deciding where all the bodies were, it was kind of up to each client to decide where they were, and that's why bodies would end up in different positions. And you might think, well, if they're all running the same physics calculation, then shouldn't the bodies all land in the same place? And (laughs) that's where another mistake, in my opinion, happened because um, there were different and seemingly random death animations that were also decided by the client. So you could end up with bodies in vastly different spots. Now, obviously, the people who decided this are top-level engineers and game designers, so they must have had a good reason for doing this. One of them might have been that the ragdoll physics were too expensive to do server-side, 
And like I said, it's been a while since I've played the game, so they might have fixed it by now. But you can see how this would be quite a problem back in the day. You could be behind a body on your screen, and for someone else, you were just laying out in the open. And so I think this is a good example of how you really have to think about what things are going to be decided by the client and what things are going to be decided by the server. Typically, I like to break it up into all of the game logic um, and game controllers. Um, I don't know how you guys set up your games, but usually I have a singleton um, game controller, which is basically just a block of code that kind of is the brain. It runs everything. I would always have that on the server side and then just feed it inputs from the client. But really expensive things to resolve, like maybe um, when I say expensive, I mean from a computational standpoint, maybe like a big particle system or something like that. Um, I would probably do that on the client side so all that data didn't have to be transferred across. So yeah, when you're designing your game, if you're going to do a server-client sort of relationship, just make sure that you really think about what kind of things do you put on the server side and what kind of things do you put on the client side. Next, let's talk about the other category, which is the non-authoritative category. The non-authoritative structure I'm thinking of is peer-to-peer. -peer. This is where each player or peer updates all the other players or peers with its inputs um, at a certain tick rate, and the game logic is resolved by each peer, and they kind of update each other peer at the same tick rate, basically. This can result in a bit of latency as the local computer the computer that the player is playing on will update its elements and then it'll inform the others and depending on real simply depending on how fast the connection is there can be kind of a delay between your movement and then the other players movements or decisions or plays or however the game is set up and this quality of connection can be a big factor and can actually lead to quite a serious amount of desync and when i say desync i just mean that the game state for two different players doesn't match up. So on my screen, you might be, let's just pretend we're playing a shooting game. On my screen, you might be in one spot, while on your screen, you're in a totally different one. And that's just because your computer hasn't updated mine yet on your position. And even though the peer-to-peer -peer sort of style has these kind of limitations, um, I think it can be a very economical solution because there's no server cost and there's not all that overhead that you have to deal with with setting up a server and hoping it's all always going to be there and having server fees. So let's talk about situations where you might want to use the different models that we presented. The server-client model is great for fast-paced action games and in this day and age, I would say it's probably almost expected for your players. Any fighting or shooting game is really going to struggle with that desync that we were talking about in the peer-to-peer -peer system. And so anything that requires fast Twitch gameplay, um, I think will probably have to be done w with a server-client model. Now remember, for smaller scale projects, you can probably get away with having one of your players act as the host, which is basically they're the server and they just kind of act as a temporary server and so you don't have to rent one and pay all the fees and all the overhead and stuff so that might be a more economical way that you go about it but just know that for any fast twitch gameplay 
you're going to want some sort of server-client relationship. Peer-to-peer, on the other hand, is great for strategy games or games that have a set interval, like turn-based games. This works well because everything can be synchronized to the turn, and you run into less desynchronous situations. Another flaw I forgot to mention with peer-to-peer is that it's not great for high player counts, and that's just because if you have a bunch of players or a bunch of peers, then one peer has to update. You know, if you're in like a 50-player game, it's got to update 49 other computers. But usually in strategy games, um, in turn-based games, you have a lower player count. So that's what makes these probably a little bit more advantageous to do in a peer-to-peer type situation because then you can take advantage of the low overhead. And my last piece of advice for infrastructure is that um, you might want to look into what your engine offers for multiplayer solutions. Of course, Unity had had a system called Unet that is no longer supported, but they don't have their new system out yet. So they're in this weird limbo. I've heard good things about um, the plugin Mirror and Tnet3. You can find those on the Asset Store, but I haven't personally used them myself. A lot of the mainstream engines have multiplayer solutions um, and plugins, like I just mentioned. I just happen to know Unity's situation because I am working on multiplayer currently. Um, maybe in a future Quick Tip segment, I'll go over what's going on with Godot and Unreal and maybe some other multiplayer uh, solutions. But I would encourage you to research what kind of um, multiplayer tools your preferred engine has. And maybe if you become really familiar with it, you should jump over onto the Discord and fill everybody in. That'd be good to know, and I think that'd be a very helpful post. So for the second part of this episode, I wanted to talk about some core principles of multiplayer game design. These are just going to be two things that I think you should think about and design for when making a multiplayer game. And the first thing that I want to talk about is the interactivity of game mechanics. And I like to think about it as like a spider web. And this is what I was talking about back in the game dev challenge about the web of interactions. So to explain this, um, each mechanic in your game, I think, should connect and combine in some way with other mechanics. Um, in a multiplayer game. You can think about this very simply like when a bullet fired from one player hits another player, that would be interactivity between the shooting of player one and the control and movement of player two. But it can get much more complex and interesting, and I think that's where the smart design comes in. Especially when it comes to cooperative play, I think it's just something about human nature, like we were made to cooperate or we evolved to cooperate, and it just feels good to work together with someone else to achieve a common goal. And this is where the web of interacting mechanics um, gets really interesting. A really good example of the web of mechanic interactions is from the game Rainbow Six Siege, and I know earlier in this episode I pointed out some of its faults. Um, But I want to point out where it succeeds, because overall I think it's a good multiplayer game, um, and it's well designed from a game design standpoint. It just has some flaws with its kind of technical execution. But from the game design, I think they did it really smartly, and I want to talk about it. So in Rainbow Six Siege, um, you have operators, which are unique characters, each with their own gadget or ability. 
the game is played with two teams of five characters each. One team attacks, one team defends, and characters are specific to attack and defense. My favorite defending character is Mira, and her gadget is a portable window that you can use to see through a wall. The window only works one way, so only the person on the inside can see out at the attackers, um, but when the attackers are coming in, they can't see back through the window. All they see is a black you know, window in the wall. So basically, it's a one-way window that is really strong because it allows Mira to see what's coming at her and kind of make a decision with an information advantage. Mira is really strong if you put her window next to a doorway or opening because you can ambush people in the room you're looking into very easily and quickly by just like quick peeking the door. You know when they're not expecting it because you can see them but they can't see you. So you can pick the perfect time to quick peek the door and get a quick kill. I should point out that um, you get one life per round so killing someone in a 5v5 game where everyone has one life is actually a very big moment and it's a huge hindrance to your team when you lose someone early on in the round. Now here's where the web of interactivity starts. The attackers have lots of characters with gadgets to deal with Mira, mostly in the forms of explosives that you stick to the window or the wall that the window is on and blow it up. So each one of these gadgets, when you start thinking about that spider web, each one of these gadgets is a connection to Mira's mechanic. And now you can see how the web begins to form. To increase the complexity of the web, um, the defenders have gadgets that can electrify the wall so that any explosives stuck to the wall are disabled. So now you have connection points between these electrifying gadgets, the explosive gadgets, Mira's window. You have connections that are cooperative between teammates and competitive between the two teams. And you can see how all of these mechanics start to combine and become greater than the sum of their parts. And this rabbit hole just keeps going on. The attackers have a character with an EMP grenade that destroys electrifying gadgets, that destroy the electric, <laughs> the explosives, that destroy Mira's window. So you can see how it's just like a domino effect. Um, and you can see how complex the web of counters and cooperative team play and competitive. And I think it's just a real masterclass, and it would take me a really long time to explain all the interactions, but I think, I hope from this example you can see why people really like this game um, and why I think even five years on or six years on now, it's still a very popular multiplayer game. I think it's because you can see how with this complex web, I'm all the cool interactions, there's always something to learn and there's always some way that you can help your team or compete with the other team. Providing plenty of opportunity for both cooperation and competition, I think is a very core thing to making multiplayer game a fun game. If you have a game with two players but they never get the opportunity to cooperate, or if the opportunities to cooperate are sparse, then I don't think the game will be as fun as it could be. And so you can use this web design to encourage people to work together or, if it's a competitive game, to compete with each other. And the complexity of the web actually might bring with it some pitfalls. So I think you should always try and have the complexity of your web correlate to the expectations of your audience. 
a really complex web works good for a crowd like the Rainbow Six Siege crowd who enjoys a tactical shooter um, with lots of like cerebral gameplay and you know the meme is big brain moves and kind of a competitive shooter environment but that's not to say that your web has to be complex to be good and like I said it might even have some pitfalls to be really complex because it can actually turn players away as it might be overwhelming to certain audiences to have to learn that much stuff about the game. If you had a web with 10 million interactions, then there's no way anyone could ever learn them all, and it would be extremely overwhelming to any of your players. Going real simple with it and having a web with only a few strands is perfectly fine, just make sure that those few strands are really strong. I think Fall Guys is a good example of a recent multiplayer game where there aren't that many threads of connecting mechanics, but the ones that are there are strong and individually satisfying. So the second principle that jumped straight to my mind when I decided I was going to do an episode on multiplayer game design was I think you should really think about communication. Communication is key to a multiplayer game Um, And when you think about it, every multiplayer game is a game of communication. By this I mean a human's ability, like our ability to communicate both verbally and non-verbally, means that no matter what, there will always be an element of communication in every multiplayer game. So I think you should design with this in mind. And in my opinion, both communicating with those you're cooperating with, but also with those that you're competing against, should be encouraged. This does not mean that every game needs voice over IP or VoIP, um, which is basically means you have like an in-game voice chat. If you think about it, most players will be on a third-party app like Discord with their friends anyways, so I'm not saying that all of your multiplayer games should have voice chat. I think that there is a big missing niche in the multiplayer world Um, with mechanics based around non-verbal communication and signaling. Signaling, to me, is kind of hard to describe, but I'll just put it in an example. I think it's really cool when two people know the mechanics of a game so well that they can signal to each other what they're going to do um, just based purely on their actions and their knowledge of the mechanics in the game. Signaling allows all sorts of interesting stuff to happen in a multiplayer game. You can signal to a teammate about working together. You could fake an opponent and use signaling to kind of lie to them, make them think you're going to do one thing when you're going when you're really going to do another. I think a good example of this is in Rocket League, which is a game that's basically soccer with RC cars. It's really cool to see fakes in that and getting the other player to kind of bite on a fake and move their car in a in a bad position and then go and get a goal. And so these are the kind of things I'm talking about when I say signaling and nonverbal communication. I think you can think about it like two games being played. One, the one on the actual screen, but also the mind games between two people either working together or competing with each other. The mind games and the signaling to each other is almost a different game. And that to me is like the coolest part of multiplayer game design and why I think it's really important to think about cooperation, um, competition, and how you might communicate the things that go along with that.
Now, I almost thought about cutting this from the episode, but here is a hot take for you. Um, With being able to signal, this opens up the opportunity to taunt your opponent. Taunting your opponent and sort of signaling, we'll say, ill will towards the competition has been in video games for almost ever. As long as there's been a multiplayer game, there's been people taunting each other. Some people are opposed to having taunting even in the game because it reflects poor sportsmanship and can be frustrating and rage-inducing to be taunted. But I think having the ability to taunt opens up a whole new kind of emotional element to the game. When someone taunts you, um, like at the start of a match or whatever, and you go on to beat them in that match, it's a really good and satisfying feeling. And granted, sometimes people taunt you and then you get absolutely destroyed, and that's not very fun. But I will gladly get destroyed, like, a few times if it means that just one of those times I can beat someone who is being cocky. Also, having the option to taunt allows for good sportsmanship moments um, when you play someone equally matched. If you both have the ability to signal a taunt, um, but don't, or even do something that signals like a good game... I think that can be really satisfying and it's just kind of a cool moment, win or lose, kind of a in-game version to tip your cap. Having that mutual respect against an equally matched opponent or teammate that you played well with um, is just a nice feeling. And so I think you should be able to signal all sorts of emotions, both ill will towards your opponent, but also a nonverbal signal for like good game or well played. Uh, I just really like that kind of stuff. And I think you have to have both the taunting and the good game um, for it to be genuine. And so that's my hot take at me on Twitter or reach out on the Discord. I want to know what you think. Do you think taunts should be not allowed in games or should they be encouraged? So just to conclude up the body of the episode... When it comes to infrastructure for your multiplayer system, it's important to understand how the system works. For online systems, we talked about two styles today that you might consider. Um, One was the client-server style, and the other was peer-to-peer. Remember that client-server systems uh, work better for action games and have advantages when trying to prevent cheaters, but they are often more costly and have more overhead involved compared to other ways of doing it. Peer-to-peer systems, on the other hand, are good for strategy games or games where the logic is executed on a regular time step like a turn-based game. Um, They're also cheaper and don't really require those external servers to work and kind of have limited overhead compared to the client-server way of doing it. They can, however, be more unstable and they don't work great for games with high player count. When it comes to actual multiplayer game design, two of the things that I think you should consider are the web of interactions and player communication. Remember, the complexity of your web of interactions should match what is expected by your audience. If you have a less complex or web with fewer connections, make sure that the individual threads are strong. You should know that communication is a huge part of playing a game with someone, And you can leverage this 
by giving your players lots of tools and opportunities to communicate. And in my opinion, nonverbal ways of doing this are underutilized. And the signaling and sort of mind games in a multiplayer game, to me, is where the really interesting game design happens. So with that, I'm going to end the episode. Next episode will be about pacing for video games. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter or follow me on Instagram, that's at underscore Zachavilli underscore. Don't forget the best thing you could do to improve yourself as a game dev is to participate in game jams. You get better by being a practitioner. And luckily for you, the Game Dev Field Guide hosts a monthly game jam once a month. Jump onto the Discord, check out the channel, um, message Gerald Burke, he's the director. I'll leave a link to the itch.io page for it, and I would really encourage you to pick a month where maybe you don't have as much going on and jump on over there and make a game. I promise you're going to learn a lot, you're going to have fun, and... Um, it's just fun to do a challenge at the same time as other people, and I think it'll make you a better game dev. Remember that there's an open invite link in the Discord, and we talk about all things um, game dev. There's tutorials, there's technical help, there's memes. Um, we got it all over there, so I'll leave the uh, invite in the show notes. With that, I'm going to sign off. I have been Zaccavelli, and if you crouch my body after no-scoping me, I swear to God... I'll see you guys next time.